As you can see, we have uh, two Bible readings uh, today. Uh, it's shown on the handout. I will begin in uh, 1 Corinthians. I'll give you all a chance to click to there. It says, We do not, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught, by our, uh, taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritual, uh, yeah, spiritual realities with spirit-taught uh, words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord <clears throat> so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And then our second Bible reading is from Psalm 139. Beginning uh, at uh, verse 9. Give a chance to flip. One, sorry, Psalm 119. That's what I meant. I don't know why I had 139 open. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> Uh, Psalm 119, beginning at verse 9. It says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to, the, to your word, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I shall recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. 
You rebuke the arrogant who are accursed, those who stray from your commands. Remove from me their scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight, they are my counsellors. Thanks, Tim. Before we get underway, um, wouldn't it be cool for Lucas's baby basket? Like, do, do WhatsApp bros do vouchers? Maybe <laughs> put one of those in there. I think that would be so cool. I, what was that? Start him off right, yeah. Start a child in the way they should go and they will never depart from it. Uh, I had my welcome to that of Adam. If you haven't met, my name's Ben and I'm delighted that you're here tonight. Uh, I'm going to bring the word to bear on us and me. Keep your Bibles open pretty much wherever you want them because this is a second in our three series, a topical talk series. Let me pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we can gather tonight and learn from your word. Please work powerfully in us by your Spirit, the same Spirit that we're going to be learning about tonight, uh, that we might be built up and strengthened in the faith and become more like your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Are we missing out on the vital ministry of God the Spirit among us? Many years ago, a then world-renowned preacher stood at St Andrew's Cathedral in the heart of the city and accused the Anglicans of the Sydney Diocese of resisting the supernatural ministry of God the Holy Spirit on account of our hyper-focus on the Bible. He said that our Trinity was God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Bible and he called us to repent of our ignorance of the work of God the Holy Spirit. I remember many years ago speaking with a young lady who was uh, highly recommending the church that she'd recently started attending and she did so by saying and I quote, our church is awesome, it's an Anglican church but we also have the Holy Spirit. Says what she maybe thinks about all the other Anglican churches anyway. In a similar vein, I remember once upon a time being chastised by someone for placing too much importance on the ministry of the Word over and above, apparently, the ministry of the Spirit. And this person uh, uh, said to me, somewhat patronisingly, Ben, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I'm not sure this person appreciated the great irony that they were actually quoting directly from the Bible when they said that. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. And yet, I legit get it. I really do. I know, I personally know what it is to secretly worry that perhaps I'm missing out on some vital element of what Jesus anticipates as the normal Christian life. I am worried about that. Maybe God intended that the Bible kind of primarily addresses my mind, but that the Spirit addresses my emotions and affections, and perhaps I'm quite emotionally stunted, as I know some men can easily be, such that my Christian experience is kind of boring and cerebral instead of vibrant and authentic as it should be. And so I've been tempted, as I suspect, maybe some of you have, to wonder, is there something missing? Are we missing out? on the vital ministry of God the Holy Spirit among us. 
Well, that's the thought I want us to hold in our heads as uh, tonight we come to look carefully at what Jesus himself, along with his appointed ambassadors, taught about the relationship between God the Holy Spirit and the work of revelation, the work of God revealing, communicating his truth. Uh, If you guys can remember from uh, two Sundays back, we looked at the work of the Spirit regarding salvation how he takes what Jesus has won on the cross and applies it to the individual sinner. Next week, we'll look at uh, uh, the work of the Spirit regarding sanctification, how he grows us in our holiness and enables us to serve one another. But tonight, in the second of our three-part series on the personal work of God the Holy Spirit, we're looking at his work in regards to revelation. And if you're a note-taker, we're just about to hit point one on your outline where we're going to consider how the coming of the Spirit transformed the Apostles. Uh, The Apostle John wrote down a big bunch of Jesus' teaching that Jesus gave during the Last Supper uh, in that upper room. It's it's got a a somewhat sort of well-known name. It's called the the Upper Room Discourse in the Gospel of John. It covers John chapter 13 through 16, and I would even argue uh, a portion of chapter 17. And I draw this to your attention because this is the biggest single section of the Bible, John 13 through 16, that deals or that has Jesus teaching about the person and work of God the Holy Spirit. And the major focus of the Spirit's work in this part, this big sort of lot of teaching from Jesus, is that the Spirit will enable the apostles to boldly bear witness to the truth of God's revelation. I'll say that again. The Spirit will enable the apostles to boldly bear witness to the truth of God's revelation. You see it, and I'm going to sort of skirt through the lot, uh, in John 14, where Jesus says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So if you ask the question, just based on this, what will God the Spirit do for the apostles? Well, he's going to continue Jesus' teaching ministry, the ministry of the Word, reminding them of what Jesus had said. Again, from the next chapter, John 15, from verse 26, Jesus says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So again, according to Jesus himself, what will the Spirit do for the apostles? He will testify about Jesus. And the apostles are to engage in the same ministry. They too are to follow the Spirit's leading, that is, by testifying about Jesus. Notice they don't testify about the ministry of the Spirit they testify about Jesus, which is what the Holy Spirit himself will also be doing. Now, I'm delighted to say, and I'm sure that you are too, if you're a follower of Jesus, that that testimony about Christ, that whole bunch of reminding of what he said and taught that the apostles gave, well, they wrote it down. And we call that the Gospels and, frankly, really the rest of the New Testament. Again, John 16 now, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. 
But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Putting it all together, speaking, teaching, reminding, testifying, making known. It's all about revelation. It's all about God communicating truth to his people. After Jesus did leave his apostles and and return to his father, he did send that great advocate. He poured out the Holy Spirit on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And that resulted in a really obvious transformation for the apostles. It's like what I do in the morning with a coffee, it's only like a hundred shots instead of one. Like it's just from, from absolute hopeless to just absolutely superhuman, right? You, you read through the, the, the book of Acts, you see this. Uh, before the Spirit came, where were the apostles? They were hiding in some upstairs room in Jerusalem. They were cowering and afraid. But after the Spirit came upon them, we see things like Peter and John standing up in front of these learned Jewish religious leaders and what do you know? testifying to the truth of God's revelation about Christ, being happy to be beaten for such things. Here's one of my favourite examples, Acts uh, from chapter 4, then uh, after Peter and John had just healed that lame dude at the temple. Does everyone know the lame guy? You know, Peter and John went to pray. Anyway, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and the elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this, You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And here's the thing that Luke wants to draw our attention to at the end of this little interchange. Verse 13 When they, the religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Do you like that, guys? To be ordinary is to be unschooled. They were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, it wasn't the healing of the lame guy that astonished the Jewish religious leaders. Miraculous as that was, he was like 40 years old or something. God had long worked through his chosen people to do supernatural things. The thing that astonished them about Peter and John is that they shouldn't have been able to speak and testify in the way they did. Jesus must somehow really have taught these guys well in a relatively short period of time. Of course, if only these leaders knew that God the Spirit is the great revealer of truth. The truth God gave in his word, for they quote scripture... And the truth that God fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus who continued his word ministry by his spirit through the apostles. And just as Jesus was by and large rejected and still gets rejected by the world, well, so too the word ministry that he continued in his people by the spirit is something that this world in its so-called wisdom could never work out, could never deduce, could never apprehend, could never accept. In fact... It's only because God the Holy Spirit indwells believers, point two in your outline, 
that we can know and indeed have the mind of Christ. One of the worst churches in the New Testament was the church of Corinth, who were so enamored with this world's notion of power and impressiveness. The Apostle Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians by pointing out that being obsessed with visually spectacular manifestations of the Spirit's work, or being impressed with great displays of worldly learning, therefore worldly status, are not the things that make for a truly spiritual person. He wrote to the Corinthians, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, I think in the sense of having worldly status. But we, by way of contrast, preach. What do we preach? Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and and Greeks, Christ, of course, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's the real supernatural power, according to Paul. There's the real wisdom. The foolish and unimpressive message of a crucified and despised king. No one would have ever expected it, but that is what spirit-led people will gravitate towards. Now, on our own, you and I could never have embraced such an unimpressive truth. So how on earth did we come to know this secret to true spirituality? Well, of course, it's because one of the big roles of God the Holy Spirit is in doing the work of revelation. He reveals God's truth to us so comprehensively that we can now be considered as those who have the very mind of Christ. This is possibly one of my favourite things about being a follower of Jesus. Uh, you know, and you get sometimes interview questions, or those questions uh, when someone wants to know about you in some sort of church setting, and they say, what's, what's the favourite thing about being a follower of Jesus? For me, it's this, right? It's knowing the world as God knows it. It's knowing reality as it really is sort of thing. Here's how Paul puts it. 2 Corinthians, beginning verse 6, he says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for, not those who work stuff out, but for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us, note, by his spirit. Now notice again, as Paul teaches about God's secret wisdom, it includes, of course, quoting from the scriptures. And so you'd be right to start wondering if the Spirit somehow lights up God's Word so that we can understand the deep secrets of God. And if you did wonder that, it'll get confirmed in the very next sort of chunk of of what Paul says. He continues, same in 2 Corinthians, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own uh, own spirit within them? In the same way, No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And that's just a little bit of logic there, right? Uh, You don't have access to my mind, which little little s spirit is is sort of the same thing, right? You you don't know what I'm thinking, what's going on in my head, Uh, which is possibly a good thing. 
Because for all you know, my head could be, you know, like a little monkey clapping a thing. That's what I think of when I think of people's head because I like Homer Simpson. Anyway. And just as well, I also don't have access to your mind, which possibly is really good for me as well because, I mean, for all I know, you could have just started drifting and thinking, how long is this joker going to keep talking? And now you're thinking about, wait, I've seen that movie, Back to the Future, whatever it is, and now you're all over the shop, right? I'm glad I don't have access to your mind and you don't have access to mine. But even more obvious than that, None of us have access to God's mind. I mean, that would be so much more profoundly obvious, wouldn't it? Can't access our own, each other's mind. Well, definitely not God's. But yet, the Holy Spirit, who is God Almighty, he has complete access to God's mind. He searches even the deep things of God, Paul just told us. And would you believe that same spirit indwells us? such that we, you and I, now have access to the very mind of God. From verse 12, What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. In other words, I think it's saying they see everything as it really is. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. In other words, they don't fit in with this world. For, and he quotes from Scripture, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And that's what we call a rhetorical question. The answer you expect is, who has known God's mind? Well, obviously no one, all right? Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. And that's why Paul, what he does at the end of this, is drop this massive bomb. He goes, but we have the mind of Christ. You see, because God the Holy Spirit indwells all people who declare that Jesus is Lord then in his extraordinary kindness, God has given us access to his mind. I remember someone who mentored me many years ago used to pray often, uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would think your thoughts after you. And he was right to ask that because as Christians, we can. Being the thoughts of God, they are, of course, at one level, way too lofty and, and beyond what we could naturally begin to comprehend. And yet... Paul tells us, and I emphasise it as I read there, that spiritual realities by the Spirit are expressed in Spirit-taught words. We can know the stuff. God's very happy to communicate and he does it with words. We can know his mind by what he says. Words are the way that God's spiritual revelation is expressed. So here is a rough diagram of how it all works. This will wake you up if you've started to, to doze a little bit. After dying to pay the price for your sin and mine and rising to new life to show that he really is the Christ, Jesus, of course, ascended to God's throne in heaven. From there, he poured out his spirit, first of all, on the apostles, enabling them to continue his teaching ministry and giving them access to his mind. Those apostles and others who were also commissioned 
recorded their witness and testimony and the teaching that accords with sound doctrine, basically the New Testament. So now, when the Spirit indwells people, making them followers of the Lord Jesus and therefore part of his church, he gives them the same mind and bears the same testimony such that we now recognise his revelation in what has been written. As we read those spirit-taught words, we can literally know the author's intent because we also have the mind of Christ. That's why Paul and also the Apostle John would eventually go on to teach us that the Scriptures, point three on your outline, are now what thoroughly equip us for the truly spiritual life. Uh, We'll start with John before we go to Paul. John, who was there in that upper room discourse in the Last Supper, would later write this letter to a struggling church, call it the letter of 1 John. He'd write to assure this group of struggling Christians that despite all the false teachers around them who were moving on to new revelation, who were running ahead to new things, that they, the little struggling church, because they stuck with the teaching of the apostles, were the legitimate, true body of Christ. But how he says that to them is really interesting. He said to that church, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. A little bit later on, same chapter, he says, as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now this is really significant because it's in this part of the letter that John is encouraging his readers to hold firm to the teaching of the apostles. And he points out that the anointing of the Spirit, remember anointing just means covering, it's like that they've received the Spirit, is the means by which they'll remain in the truth of what those apostles have passed on. So there must be a sense in which the revelation given by the Spirit is complete, for the application is not moving on to greater revelation, but remaining in Christ who dwells with his church by his Spirit. What's the sum total of that revelation, such that Christians don't require anything further? Well, of course, it's what we have now in the closed canon of Scripture. Hence, we come to the last of the Bible passages I want us to consider regarding the Spirit's work in Revelation, and it's one that I dare say many of us will be familiar with, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy is written late in Paul's life. Uh, It's a letter in which Paul speaks about having run the race, having fought the good fight, and now looking forward to the crown of righteousness that Jesus presumably soon, is going to reward him. In his earlier letter, so in 1 Timothy, Paul had quoted something that Jesus said and called it Scripture, in just the same way he'd call the Torah Scripture. So this is 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul says, For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. That's part of the Torah, Deuteronomy. And apparently, Scripture also says the worker deserves his wages. B 
But you can't find that in Paul's Bible. That's not in the Old Testament. That's Jesus. So by the time of 2 Timothy, when Paul says Scripture, he's thinking at least of some things that I think Jesus has said that have been written down. Now that's important to keep in mind because when he comes then in 2 Timothy to that well-known statement about Scripture, I think it would actually be reasonable to apply it to at least more than the Old Testament and frankly the entirety of what we now call the New Testament revelation. Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And as you can see on the slide there, the word used for God-breathed is this sort of compound word that has God and spirit together. It's God like outspirited, or literally he expired the scriptures. He spirited them out, if you like. The words of scripture are the words of the Holy Spirit, the revelation that God expresses in spiritual words. And they're not partially helpful for the Christian life. They enable us to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scriptures illuminated by the Spirit are absolutely all that we need for salvation and the life of godliness. We cannot possibly be missing out on any of the Spirit's ministry for we have the entirety of his sufficient revelation in the Spirit-filled words of the Bible. The more truly spiritual you want your life to be, the more Christianly you want to live, well then the more reading and understanding of the scriptures you'll be invested in. You could go and find some other method for spiritual living that downplays the importance of God's word and and revelation. Perhaps some exciting so-called worship, meaning intense music and singing in which the spirit is then said to come and supposedly recharge us to some new level of spiritual success or whatever. You could go find a method that incorporates breathing practices and Eastern meditation and, and, and sort of reciting biblical mantras over and over in the hope that it somehow moulds your heart to make it more of how God wants it to be. You could do those things. Or instead, you could just recognise that you already have the mind of Christ, that the anointing of the Holy Spirit means you're not missing out on anything. You can simply read and grow in your understanding of God's word at your own pace both individually and, of course, in fellowship with one another. And just on that point, fellowship with one another, I didn't say this when I preached this this morning because it's uh, too much of a brutal truth bomb, but with my own people here, I don't sort of mind. Um, Churches in our neck of the woods are actually not doing so well. Uh, I keep hearing from ministers who go on retreats with other ministers and they talk about the difficult issues they're having and attendance is actually one of the biggest problems. A couple of decades back, in order to have 100 people at your church on a Sunday, you had to have about 120 on your roll. Now we're lucky if we're hitting 50% on average of people on the rolls who are showing up on Sundays. Uh, The difficulty in saying what I'm about to say is that it's one of those things that the people with a tender conscience always take to heart more than they should. And the people who aren't here are the ones that need to hear it. But I'm going to say it anyway. You cannot possibly, you cannot possibly be a mature Christian 
if you have not basically said to yourself, weekly church attendance is what I do. Yeah, I know there's exceptions. There always are. We operate on grace, not works. But it, it, it's just, it's hand-in-glove sort of thing. Going to church does not make you a, a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. And that's true, but, but everyone forgets to say the sentence that needs to come after that one. It's true, church attendance doesn't save you. But lack of church attendance usually points to a great immaturity or even a lack of salvation. That's just the reality. Spiritual DNA is DNA together. God scatters people as judgment. He gathers them in salvation. Uh, it's a big problem and friends, we've got to get over this one. If you're a follower of Jesus and you actually want to be mature, if you don't want to miss out, you're not missing out with all the fancy stuff that looks so-called spiritual, but you are missing out if church isn't a priority, if regular gathering around the Word of God. Now, as I said before, I want to be really careful. If you've got a tender conscience, you're like, oh no, Ben's like absolutely smashed me because I don't come to church enough, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I want you to take that from here and just back it down a little bit, all right? And... Really what I'm saying is in one level kind of preaching to the choir because you're all here. Be gentle with the people that you aren't, but uh, just a little nudge. It's not, not misplaced. Anyway, friends, let other people demand signs. Let other people seek after worldly power, but for us, let's be content with the foolish message of Christ crucified and the revelation of truth that God has put into the words of Scripture. That's the mindset, by the way, that the spirit-filled psalmist had who wrote Psalm 119, which is the other Bible reading I had. Listen again, I'll read a couple of bits again. Listen again how joyful this guy is to indulge in God's revelation expressed in words. From verse uh, 13 of Psalm 119, I'll put it on the screen. He said, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I think he's actually memorising them. With my lips I recount them. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. All right, here's $2 million. Are you really happy? Here's the word of God. Do you rejoice the same way? That's what this guy does. Verse 15, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Or again, just a bit later on from the same psalm, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Isn't that incredible? We actually sit on the good side of, of, of this equation because our eyes have been opened by the Spirit. We can say this prayer and have it answered. You can say, God, please uh, build me up and strengthen me. Please give me understanding of your word. I think I challenge people in the Bible study to read a bit of the Bible every week and see whether or not they feel like they've kind of unpacked something. Verse 24, your statutes are my delight. They are my counsellors. You want to find supernatural joy in the ministry of God the Holy Spirit? Stick your head in the Bible. Finally, what then of revelation beyond what the Spirit has given us in Scripture? Well, of course, God's capable of revealing himself in any way that he so well desires. But there's absolutely no promise that he'll operate in a way contrary to what he said he would, which is in the Scripture. 
Time and again, the scriptures make it clear that one of the great dangers we face is the temptation to think we're missing out on something really good. You know who came up with FOMO? Satan. Legit, think of the garden, right? Adam and Eve, did God really say yes or no, no, if you eat this, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. See, God's holding something back. You're missing out, Eve. If you take this thing, then you'll, you'll have what you really want. Now you see it again in the early church in the New Testament. You've got the early Jewish Christians, some of them, sort of implying that the Gentile Christians aren't really experiencing the full measure of God because they're not practising circumcision. They're not keeping the law of Moses, which makes Paul have an absolute fit, right? There will always be those who go on in great detail about what they have seen in their visions on account of their unspiritual minds that are actually puffed up with idle notions. We must not let them disqualify us, Colossians 2. Probably my favourite bit of teaching regarding extra-biblical revelation comes from a great Puritan English guy named John Owen. It is so simple and so memorable and so profound. He says, if private revelations agree with Scripture, they are needless. If they disagree, they are false. Isn't that wonderful? It's worth learning. Friends, let me uh, lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the powerful work of your Spirit in and among us, that he reveals the truth, that he reveals your mind, and he does so in words, words that we now have written down, recorded for us in the Scriptures, that we therefore miss out on absolutely nothing we need for salvation and godliness. Heavenly Father, help us to uh, uh, stay away from that very real temptation to think that there's always something better, that we're always missing out. And like the spirit-filled psalmist, to stick our heads into your word, to recount things, to learn things, to memorise things, and therefore to delight and rejoice in the most profound revelation that you've given that our world simply cannot understand. We thank you that it pleased you to reveal the things, not to the wise and learned, but to little children, to those who are humble and contrite. And Father, may we always be humble when we sit at your word, reading it, seeking to understand it, and become more like Jesus on account of committing it to our hearts. It's in his name we pray. Amen.